morning to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You'll find this in the church Bibles at page 267. The longer I live, the more concerned I am about being faithful to the end. I don't want to worry about my legacy. I don't want my life to be consumed with an obsession to accomplish something great for God. I don't want to be distracted or disqualified by money, sex, and power. I don't want to crash and burn on the shoals of selfish ambition. What I want is to preach the gospel and live in the light of that gospel and then die and then be remembered by my family and friends and church simply as a man who was faithful. And I'm very aware of the fact that there are many dangerous toils and snares that threaten to trip me up and take me out. This chapter, 2 Samuel 7, can help us learn how to flourish in faithfulness by watching how God deals with David and how David responds to the Lord in this chapter. It's a watershed moment in David's life. One of my friends called it the continental divide in David's life. Everything that's happened up to this point has been flowing into this, and everything that will happen from here on will flow out of this moment. You've heard of the story of David and Goliath. It may be the most famous story in David's life, but what happens in 2 Samuel 7 is much more gigantic than what happened with Goliath. This is one of the most important chapters in the story of the Bible. And if what God is saying to David in this chapter takes hold of our hearts, then the truth of 2 Samuel 7 can become a watershed moment in our lives too. We're going to find three movements in this chapter. Verses 1 through 7 focus on a plan that's in David's heart. Then verses 8 through 17 shift the focus to a much greater plan that's on God's heart. Then verses 18 through 29 show us David's response to God's greater plan. And in each of these sections, we're going to learn something about God and his dealings with us that if we take it to heart, can make the difference in our lives between flaming out and finishing well in a life of faithfulness. So first in verses 1 through 7. We learn that God doesn't need us to accomplish his plans. Isn't that good news? It's really important for us to remember if we want to be faithful to the end. There is nothing in God's heart that he has planned to do that he is dependent on you or on me to get done in this world. And that is good news. He can accomplish all his plans and all his purposes with us or without us. Let's read verses 1 through 3. When the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that is on your mind for the Lord is with you. Picture this scene. There have been years and years of trouble, and finally David is settled in his palace 
in Jerusalem, the city of peace. We read in chapter 5 how Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and masons and craftsmen to build this great house for David. It's the most beautiful, most fragrant, most expensive house in the kingdom. It's amazing. God has blessed David enormously. So I imagine one night there's David. He's having dinner with his friend and his advisor, the prophet Nathan. They get up on the rooftop as the coolness of the evening starts to descend. They're sipping on their mint tea together, and they're just having a relaxed conversation. And as they talk, David says, you know, there's this thing that's just been bothering me. I keep looking at this beautiful house that I'm living in, and then I look outside, and there's that, that old, musty, moldy tent And inside that tent, there's the Ark of the Covenant. That thing's been traveling with us all through the wilderness, through hundreds of years. How can it be that I'm living in this magnificent palace and God's presence is dwelling in this moldy tabernacle? It's not right. And Nathan doesn't even need to think very hard about how to respond to David. Nathan does what any wise pastor would do if someone from the congregation comes and says, Pastor, I'd like to make a sizable donation to the ministry of this church. Nathan just looks at him and says, Go, do whatever is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. I'm for it. Colin Smith calls this the story of a godly man with a good heart and a great idea. But how does God respond to the great idea of this good and godly man? God turns him down. Let's continue reading at verse 4. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? Notice the pronouns there. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? I love how the Lord addresses David. Here in the first three verses, David is called the king. But in verse 4, the Lord doesn't say, go and tell King David. He says, go to my servant David. It's a reminder of who's really in charge. No matter how high our rank or our position before men might be, The highest honor we could ever have in this life is to be a servant of the Lord. And the Lord reminds David of how he has always dwelt with his people from the days of the Exodus until now. Wherever they've gone, God has gone with them. When they were in distress, God was in distress. When they were wandering through the desert, he was with them there. When they were facing battles, the Lord of Heaven's army was fighting on their behalf, giving them the victory. It's what Tim Keller calls the incarnational principle. 
God is saying, this is the kind of God I am. I am the kind of God who dwells among his people. When they suffer, I suffer with them and for them. When they're on the move, I'm on the move. Wherever they go, whatever they face, I am the kind of God who goes with my people. That's the type of God we have. So God is telling David that the time has not yet come to establish his presence in a permanent house like a temple. That's going to have to wait until the next generation because God has different plans for David. Even though it says in verse 1 that God had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that is going to be temporary. There are other battles that are going to need to be fought, and David's going to have to fight them in order for God's people to experience rest in the land. That rest isn't going to materialize sufficiently until David's son Solomon becomes king. And the desire that's in David's heart isn't going to be Fulfilled by David, it's going to be reserved by his son to fulfill. And I think that's instructive for us. Sometimes we can become obsessed with our plans for what we're going to do for God. We start to get fixated on some goal, some desire, some noble ambition to accomplish something great for God. And in itself, it's not a bad desire. But it might not be what's in God's heart. We must not confuse our instincts and our impressions of what God wants us to do with what God has actually planned. Who has known the mind of the Lord, Scripture says. There are plans and purposes in the heart of God that are infinitely more than what our minds can fathom. And your life and my life are just one brief chapter in a grand story that stretches far beyond our lifetimes. And the chapter of your life matters. Every human life is eternally significant in the plans and purposes of God. But what gives your life its significance is not the little things that you're able to accomplish for God. What gives your life significance is the fact that God is writing your life into the greater story of his plans and his purposes. You might have good desires to do great things, to change the world for the glory of Jesus, and we should have great desires to do things for Jesus and his kingdom, but we always need to be careful not to equate our desires with God's plans. Sometimes God will say no to our desires because he has a bigger plan and a bigger purpose than we can comprehend. And sometimes God will let other people accomplish the desires that were in our heart because he has something else he wants to do in us and through us. And that can be hard. When you look at someone else and you see what appears to be great success in their life and they're doing the things you wanted to do and you look at your own life and you think, this is pretty hard right now. I'm not really enjoying this or this is difficult. But do you really know what God might be accomplishing in and through this season of your life, even though you can't see it. Someone has said, a fruitful tree can flourish because someone did the hard work of digging a hole in the ground. And that's what God has in store for David. He's going to have to do the hard work of subduing the enemies of Israel and establishing rest. Only then will God allow his son Solomon to build a temple 
for his dwelling place. So remember that when it seems like God's not allowing you to do the great things you were hoping to do for him. Remember that God has a bigger plan, a bigger purpose than your limited mind can comprehend. But he's including you in his great story, and you get to play a role that he ordains for you as his servant in that story. That's the first lesson David must learn in order to flourish in faithfulness as God's servant. The second is this. What God has done and will do for us is infinitely more significant than anything we will ever do for him. That's lesson two. Let's read verses 8 through 17. So now, this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. Now notice the shift in focus here. In verses 1 through 3, the focus was on what David was going to do for God. But in these verses, God flips the pronouns. The focus is entirely on what God has done and will yet do for David. The Lord starts by reminding David of his humble beginnings there in verse 8. He says, I took you from the pasture. You were just a little shepherd boy tending the flock. And I took you from there to be ruler over my people. And wherever you've gone, David, I've been with you. And I've given you victory over your enemies and given you rest. God's simply impressing on David's heart the truth that we love to sing when we say, all that we've accomplished you have done for us. And any fruit we harvest, it's a gift from your hand. That's the truth. It's all of grace. And notice in every instance, God is the one who takes the initiative. He took you and me out of our former way of life, our empty way of life, and he united us to Christ and put us into his family and gave us a new vocation, a new purpose to serve him. He's been with us every step of the way. He's the one who's defeated our enemies of sin and death and hell. We are who we are today, if we are in Christ, 
all because of God's grace. And we must never forget that. What happens if David forgets the grace that has brought him safe thus far? Someone reflected on that question. And he said, do you know what I think? I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David, riding the crest of great acclaim, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people, capturing the allegiance of all Israel, he was heavy with success. And he'd begin to think he could do God a favor. But if David continues to develop along these lines, he will be ruined as a representative of God's kingdom. This is Eugene Peterson speaking, and look at what he says. He says, if any of us develops an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to who we are than our own action and performance, our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. I think we need to let those wise words sink in a bit. How easily we can lose sight of this, God and his grace toward us. We can lose sight of this in the midst of all our frantic activity for God. And we can start to imagine that what we're doing is all important. And maybe because we're doing such an important work, maybe we can start to behave in a way that is less than godly. Maybe we start to feel like we are entitled to be treated like a king instead of a servant. Maybe we start to think that what we are doing is even more important than what God has done for us. And friends, if we let that happen, if in our own inner identity we start to feel as if our actions and our performance and our ministry is more important to who we are, if our status and our legacy and our activity and our standing in the eyes of people is more important to us than what God has done on Calvary, than what God has done for us in Christ, when that happens, we are forfeiting any usefulness that we can have in God's kingdom. It's utterly ruined. And God's not going to let David go there. He starts with reminding David of all that he's already done for him. And then in the middle of verse 9, God directs David's attention to what he will do to a horizon in the far-off future and unfolds for David a future that is above and beyond anything that David could ask or imagine. It blows his mind. God says to him, I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth in verse 9. Who does that remind you of? Does that remind you of an earlier promise that God made to another great father in the faith many generations before? This is pointing David back to the covenant promises that God made with Abraham back in chapter 12 of Genesis and connecting David to that covenant promise. And God's going to develop that covenant promise even further now with David. And then in verses 10 and 11, the Lord speaks of planting his people in a place in the land, giving them peace and rest from all their enemies. 
Then we come in the second part of verse 11 to the key word in this chapter. What do you think the key word in this chapter is? Any guesses? The word house, repeated 14 times in this chapter. David has said he wanted to build a house for God. But how does God respond in verse 11? David, you want to build me a house? Oh, no. The Lord will build you a house, David. And it's obvious as we read the description of this house that God's not referring to a physical structure, but to a dynasty, a royal lineage, a kingdom. In verses 12 and 13, the focus is on the next generation. David will have a son whose kingdom God will establish. And verse 13 says, he is the one who will build a house for my name. But then God says something astonishing at the end of verse 13 that makes it obvious that God's vision is extending far beyond just the next generation with Solomon into generations and generations to come. God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, comments on this verse and says, if anyone tries to tell me that these verses are just about Solomon, I will laugh in his face because there's no way that Solomon can exhaust these promises or contain these promises. There are three remarkable aspects of this house of David that come sharply into focus as God makes his covenant with David in these verses. First of all, here is a house, a kingdom that death cannot destroy. A kingdom that will endure forever. Secondly, this is a kingdom that sin cannot spoil. It won't come to an end like Saul's kingdom did because of Saul's failure. David and his descendants will sin, and God will discipline them for their sin in verse 14. But, God says in verse 15, my faithful love, my steadfast love, my chesed, my covenant love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul whom I removed from being before you. So death cannot destroy this kingdom, sin cannot spoil this kingdom, and time cannot erase this kingdom. We see in verse 16 again, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. That's the promise God makes to David. And listen, church, I want you to think about this promise. And I want you to realize that everything this broken world is aching for is contained in the fulfillment of this promise. The hopes and fears of all the years are fixated on God's faithfulness to perform what he promises to David in these verses. Creation is standing on its tiptoes in eager longing an expectation for the fulfillment of this promise. The hope of the world hinges on God's sure mercies to David of bringing in a kingdom that cannot be destroyed by death, a kingdom that cannot be spoiled by sin, a kingdom that cannot be erased 
by time. And when that king and his kingdom come in all its fullness, the whole universe is going to rejoice. In the words of Psalm 96, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Do you hear that description? Do you hear? Can you imagine the trees singing and dancing? Can you imagine Tekawitha Woods becoming a grand Alleluia chorus to the Lord Jesus when he comes as king? Creation's just a shadow of what it could be right now. It's a groaning creation. And humanity is just a shadow of what we were meant to be, what we were supposed to be. But when the true king returns, he's going to make everything a paradise that's even greater than Eden. And when the true king comes, he's going to make everything that humanity was created to be, everything that you were created to be, he's going to make you flourish and blossom beyond what you could wildest dreams imagine. And you're going to sing and dance too. I mean, just think about what Joe preached about last week. David dancing before the ark of the Lord. And Joe was saying, that should be characteristic of our worship. And I know you resonate with that. But I didn't see anyone dancing today. Where was the dancing? Come on, New Covenant. You're going to dance when Jesus returns. You're going to dance and leap for joy. You're going to sing. There's going to be a reason. No one is going to have to stir it up. I'm going to see this church dancing with every tribe and language and nation before the Lord when he comes because the king is going to fulfill everything we've been longing for. And friends... The importance of this promise is so central in the Bible. And this is why it's impossible to understand the Christmas story. Christmas is only 85 days away. <laughs> it's so important. We can't understand the Christmas story without understanding the story of David. Because over and over again, the story of Christmas, in the story of Christmas, we read that Jesus is the promised son of David. He's the one of whom Isaiah the prophet spoke when he said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and this part's my favorite. Let's say it. Let's say it together. After Prince of Peace, let's say that together. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Breathtaking. My hope, your hope, the hope of the world is contained in that promise. And that's why the angel Gabriel announced to the Virgin Mary these words. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, echoing this promise, he shall be my son, I will be his father. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Can you imagine that young, scared, Virgin Mary trembling in the presence of that angel and realizing everything my parents, everything my community, everything I've heard in the synagogue about God's promise to David is now dwelling in my womb. Imagine. Imagine. That's why in the prophet and the apostle who wrote Hebrews, we read these words in Hebrews 1.5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father, echoing Psalm 2. Or again, now echoing 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. You see, all throughout the New Testament, what are we being told? Jesus is the promised son of David. He is the one in whom all these promises are coming to fruition. And when we come to Jesus through faith, what happens to us? If you're in the women's Bible study this week, what chapter are you working on? 1 Peter chapter 2. And listen to what it says. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves, church, you yourselves as living stones a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see the great honor and dignity that God is conferring on Christ and his church? That he's including us in this massive project of salvation to bring blessing to the world as far as the curse is found. And we who belong to Jesus are being built as living stones into this spiritual house that will endure forever, into this kingdom that will have no end. What an honor to be a part of this. Church, I ask you, how would your life be transformed if you started looking at everything that's happening to you and all the chaos and all the difficulty in the world around you through the lens of this promise, what if this promise to David started functioning in your life the way it functioned in David's life? It changed everything for David. What if it changed everything for you? If you really believed every day, Jesus, you're the son of David. Your kingdom will never be destroyed, never be spoiled, never be erased for all time. You are, and I am, I am a living stone in your house. I belong to your eternal kingdom. You're going to make your blessing flow through me and through our church to this community and to the nations. What would change in your life if you started thinking about your future and the future of all of creation under the influence of this unbreakable covenant promise that of the increase of Jesus' government and peace, there shall be no end and he will reign forever and ever? How might that quiet your worries if you really started thinking about this? You know, if you're like me, one of the most annoying things someone can say when you're worrying is, 
Just quit worrying. Okay, now I got to worry about not worrying. Come on. I, I need more help than that. I need the kind of counsel Martin Luther would give to his friend Philip Melanchthon. When Philip would become consumed with worry, Martin Luther would come up behind him, put his hands on Philip's shoulders, and he would say in his ear, let Philip cease to rule the world. Stop acting like the government is on your shoulders, Philip. It's on Jesus. Because when we stop trying to rule the world, then we'll stop worrying. You can't believe that Jesus is king and that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end and at the same time be consumed with worry. So let David cease to rule the world and let Jesus be king. The government is on his shoulders. And church, how would it change your engagement with the world around you if you believe that these promises are true? If you believe that Jesus is the promised king and that his kingdom is the hope of the world and that by faith, as you come to Jesus, you're part of that kingdom, how would it change the way you view this crazy world around you? I was born in an even-numbered year, but one of the things I love about the odd-numbered years is that there aren't any major elections in the odd-numbered years, except now in America, every season's election season. But it's a, you know what's going to happen once the calendar turns to 2024. You know exactly what's going to happen. You are going to be bombarded with messages telling you this election is the most important election in our lifetime. How many times have you heard that? Maybe it's even the most important in our nation's history. The survival of democracy is on the line. America is the most exceptional nation that ever existed. And if we don't elect the right person, this country's going down the drain. You're going to be hearing that 24-7. It's going to wear on you. It's going to have an effect on your spirit. It's going to tempt you to be anxious, to maybe be bitter, to maybe act in ways that are not a good witness of Christ and his kingdom to your neighbors. And you're going to need to be ready to fight that battle very soon. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't care about the political leaders our nation elects or that elections aren't important, or that nothing's at stake. We should care. We should try to be engaged. Most of all, we should pray for our nation, pray for her leaders. But I'm pleading with you, church, friends. I'm pleading with my own heart. Don't get sucked into the hype. Don't get intoxicated by worldly hopes. Don't bow to the idol of nationalistic pride. Don't become obsessed with who's going to occupy the White House or the seats of Congress for the next term. Don't let that steal your joy, your passion to see Christ exalted, 
to see Christ's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because I'm telling you, friends, there are thousands of things in the world today related to Christ and his kingdom that should be more engaging and more encouraging and more engrossing of your attention than whoever is going to be president for the next four years. Thousands of things that matter eternally more than that. God does not promise that the increase of America's government shall have no end. God never says that our nation is the light in the darkness or the hope of the world. But he does say these things about Jesus and about his kingdom. So let's be preoccupied with who God is and what God has done and what God promises he will do through his son, our king, the Lord Jesus. And let's remember that Christ and his kingdom are utterly secure and will forever endure. That's what we need to remember. What God is doing through Christ is far more important than anything that any human being will ever do for him. Finally, If what God has done and will do through Christ is far more important than anything we can do for him, is there anything we can do or should do in response to this? That brings us to our last point this morning. If we want to flourish in faith to the very end of our lives, the most important thing you and I can do is respond to God's promise with praise and in prayer. That's what David does in response to all God has spoken to him. He's almost breathless. He's lost in wonder. He's full of awe. He has to sit down to take it all in. He's at a loss for words. Look at verse 18. And King David went in, sat in the Lord's presence and said, I love these words. Who am I? Lord God, what is my house that you have brought me this far? When's the last time you've done that? Silently sat in God's presence and just said, who am I, Lord, that you have treated me so kindly? And then he goes on, what you have done so far was a little thing to you, Lord God. For you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And then he says something very important. And this is a revelation for mankind. This is instruction for humanity. Through God's words to David, God is showing the world how he intends to deal with all humanity through the gracious reign of his son, our Savior. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God. You know what I'm like. And because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. He's amazed. These were the words that a pastor in only England chose to preach on in December 1772. Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And as this pastor began to reflect on God's steadfast love to him when he was far away from the Lord, how the Lord rescued him from shipwreck on the stormy seas and delivered him from a wicked career in slave trading and forgave him and cleansed him and redeemed him, this pastor, John Newton, 
became so amazed at what God had done for him in Christ that he couldn't just write a sermon for his congregation. He had to write a song for them to sing after the sermon. And these are the words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far. His grace will lead me home. His grace is what enables me to be faithful to the end. This amazes David. And all he can do as he thinks about what God has promised to do through his lineage is praise God that he has promised a future for his house that is going to bring light to the world and life to humanity. It's like Newton at the end of the hymn, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun because the future is so glorious for those who belong to Jesus. The most important thing we can do is not all our activities all the things that get us worked up, the most important thing we can do is praise God for what he has already done in Christ and what he will do through Christ. And that will help us to keep rejoicing in hope when things aren't going well, to keep being patient in tribulation and to keep being persistent in prayer. So he praises God and speaks of his greatness in verse 22. This is why you are great. Lord God, there is none like you. There is no God besides you. And he talks about how God has acted for his people in such unique ways, choosing them and delivering them from Egypt. And then David takes God's promises that he has just made to him, and he turns them into prayers in verses 25 through 29. No longer is David worrying about building a house for the Lord. David now realizes anything I can do for God is puny compared to what God has promised to do for me. And so all he does is take the things God has promised and turn them back to God in prayer and says, God, please do what you have promised. The Puritan William Grinnell wrote this, prayer is nothing but the promise reversed or God's word turned inside out and formed into an argument and retorted back again upon God. By faith, And that's what David does. He turns the promise of God inside out and asks God to do what he promised. Look at verse 25. Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant and his house. Do as you have promised so that your name will be exalted forever when it is said, the Lord of armies is God over Israel. And he rehearses the promise God has made that he will build a house. And then he says these words, Therefore, your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. How have I found the courage to pray? Because I've listened to what you've promised. And I believe in what you've promised. So now, Lord, I look to you and I wait on you and I say, Do what you have said you will perform and I will wait quietly for you to act. Friends, nothing's more important than this. 
Maybe right now you have something pretty important that you need to do for the Lord. But someday there's going to come a day where you can't do much, where you might be set aside, where you're too weak or whatever. You can still do this. You can still praise God for what he has done. And you can still pray that God will be faithful to all his promises. And when you do that, you are doing what matters most. God loves to remind us that everything we do is nothing compared to what he has done for us. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that liberating? Isn't that a relief to realize that the weight of the world is not on your shoulders but on Jesus? Doesn't it do your heart good to remember that your little life is a chapter in God's great plan for humanity and there's nothing you can do to wreck God's purposes? He can take the very worst that you've done and weave it into a grand story of redemption And whatever he's giving you to do right now, God's not up in heaven wringing his hands hoping you get it right, hoping you don't mess it up because the kingdom belongs to the Lord and to his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. So as we come to his table now,